broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland. This is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. to another edition of Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and co-host Johan Obert is with me. Johan, welcome to the show again. Great to be here again, Chris. Uh, looking forward to it. And this is actually an episode that I'm really, really pumped up to hear. This is going to be interesting. I'm excited to, to have uh, this episode coming up. Uh, I'm excited for this cold weather to break, get rid of this this spring turning into winter again. I was not expecting snow so far into the spring this week. How, how was your break? You were out with the kids' break. How'd that go this week? Perfect. It's really, really good. You know, there's a great advantage living in Zurich because you have two hours to the Alps, so you can get some skiing done. So I think I did my last skiing weekend. So I'm really, really glad for this weekend. And, and, um, Felt like it was a good winter, but I'm more optimistic, and I think the sun is coming out, and I think the spring is here. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I think it's about spring. My snow tires are coming off the car this week, and, and I'm ready to go. Uh, from from a podcast point of view, I couldn't be more excited than than our guest today. There is some exciting technology. There's some political views. There's some a little bit of everything I think that this guest brings. <laughs> I've seen him speak. I've met him in my office in my professional life. This is a really passionate gentleman. And w- what I'm hoping we cover today is the intersection of e-mobility and energy. And, and what does that mean? And technologies that can help it. Now, when I've heard Harry speak before, he's talked about blockchain. Now, imagine working for a company like Daimler Mobility, this huge powerhouse, and building your career on a technology developed by an 18-year-old. He talks about this Ethereum protocol or this blockchain, and he's betting his future on something an 18-year-old created. I I can't wait to hear how he hedges his bets here. Johan? No, I I likewise, likewise. You know, I I am more also on, on this... Being working from a large corporation, large organization, how do you actually implement this? How do you work with the rest of the silos in a large organization like this? You know, through my career, through large organizations, there's always been initiatives around this. But how do you actually get the business momentum going? And these are the things I also like to to hear more about, because I think this is a fascinating opportunity, both from the company that they're in, but also from the technology and what it can do. And obviously, the whole thing about e-mobility, integrating this into the energy grid is extremely interesting. Yeah, I want to hear how the e-mobility comes in, right? Because... There's so much about blockchain out there. there. There's so many different initiatives. You got the smart grid that you need to build on. You got the, the models for mobility. So you've got kind of, you know, in, in technology, Johan and I, our background, we would have the OSI stack. Well, there, there's one for e-mobility. There's, there's a model there that talks about that. Um, and, and I really want to see, because I've seen things from the Smile project where I can go on an app in Austria and, and, and run things through my phone and, and have a user experience that's gone very common. But when you look at big players like Daimler getting involved, it'd be interesting to hear what they're thinking as well. 
So without too much more supposition, let's introduce our guest, Harry Burns. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, glad to be here. So we're excited to hear a little bit about your background and a little bit about your thinking. I think we're presupposing that we're going to talk about energy. We're going to talk a little bit about Ethereum blockchain. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, right now, uh, um, for my background, I'm a software person. I've been all my life. So I did a master's on neural networks. Now we'd say deep learning. I have a PhD on distributed AI and expert systems. The last six years, I've been working for Daimler Mobility, as it's called now. It used to be called Daimler Financial Services, of which the last three years, building up, founding, heading the Daimler Mobility blockchain uh, factory. And now uh, I'm basically spinning my way out of there and uh, taking some of these uh, wonderful concepts that we've developed there, taking it out into the brave new world of venture uh, funded companies and applying it to mobility, to e-mobility, and to what we call sector coupling in Germany, where the power grid meets electric mobility. That's that's amazing. It sounds like quite a transition, quite a path to, to get there. So I guess we start the conversation is, what is e-mobility? What does it mean to our listeners? And you know how is that really directly impact the, the okay. energy markets. So in the beginning, e-mobility is fairly simple. So the users or the end customer is not that much concerned, except the difference is now they have a very, you know, uh, silent vehicle. It doesn't, uh, you don't need to fuel it with diesel or gasoline. You fuel it with electricity, except for that, you don't really need to worry about too many changes, but it's better for the environment. It keeps the air clean. And that's the main and primary change between e-mobility and uh, non-e-mobility. And you also see because of that, which is not so visible in Europe, but if you look at Asia, e-mobility has basically created a completely new variety of form factors. So if you look at the 15 different e-scooters that you would see in Beijing, um, you see that already the form factors for mobility, because electric engines are much smaller, much simpler to build. So you're much more variable in the form factor, as you say, for scooters. So you got segways with two wheels, you got segways with one wheel, you got scooters with wheels that are about this big, then you got scooters with that look like Vespas, and you got anything in the middle. So electromobility, it's becoming new mobility. It's much more software-driven, much more variable, obviously much more silent, and most of all, or um, much better for the environment. I think that's an interesting thing there, Harry, uh, that you mentioned, because this has always been a little bit of, of a discussion I've had before with when we talked about the, 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 the former, the ICE kind of vehicles versus the e-mobility, and, and, and also the integration there of a software-driven product versus more yes. a mechanical driven product much if that's more, the word to do how, how do you see this because i see this is this is also fundamentally a big big challenge or a big opportunity that we might not have seen so it's not just electrics it's actually also more digital is that a fair announcement yes it's actually think think about it this way a lot of incredibly smart engineering went into think about what a combustion engine is it's backed basically you got explosions going on there boom boom 
serious explosions and a lot of physics, material technology, stabilizing and whatnot goes into basically taking the, taking these explosions and turning them into something fairly smooth of a driving experience. Now, all of that is gone. So a lot of the technology and a lot of the space that a modern car takes, you know, you all have these things, this hand rest in the middle uh, of the car next to the driver. That's not because the, originally, that's not meant as a hand rest. There's a powertrain basically underneath it, which just takes up a lot of space. And now you basically have electric vehicles and the complexity just drastically goes down. They're much easier to do. So basically running an electric engine, you have the wheel, essentially, it's a little bit simplified, but you got the wheel, you got a piece of software, and then the software tells the wheel how fast to spin, as long as you got the battery. So you got the battery, you got the engine, which can be made quite small, and then you got software in the middle running this whole thing. This is, for instance, why the acceleration of these things is so incredible. You basically have to throttle them down. The acceleration on an electric vehicle would be far too dangerous <laughs> for any modern city if you would let it run. And that now, in turn, puts leaves you a lot more room for interior design. People haven't fully woken up to that, except for the usual kind of wide display in the front. But you have a lot more space yeah. to design your interior. And you have a lot more flexibility in the behavior of this thing. And that you can now use software for because your mechanical challenges have drastically dropped. It's much easier to build these things. You put them together. It's very, mm. relatively speaking, to building a combustion car. Building an electric vehicle is very, very straightforward. So I, I, I see that perhaps it's simpler architecture. Uh, my heart rings out on, on the technology side of that, right? Because of all mm -hmm. the sensors and data and all the components you can get, right? Even in, in a traditional car today, the, the number of sensors and input that you could get data out of is, is high. If you take Correct. that data, marry that with kind of a sharing economy now. So let's look at mobility in, in, in separate mm -hmm. ways, right? You got kind of the electricity part of it. You got the moving around, the mobility part, and then you got the IT component of it. And you put all those components together, you, you maybe can do some interesting things, right? So whether that reducing CO2 because you take more efficient routes, whether that be sharing a resource or, or different components of the, the, the architecture or what you can do. And I guess what, what I hope to hear from you is what's the vision of pulling that together? And I, I've heard you talk about user interface before and, and identity and, and smart contract almost type stuff and, and things of that nature. Maybe you can take us to the journey from this cool electric thing you just described, great performing, a lot of fun to have, to where it's headed. So by the time folks like Norway, where we talked in the pre-show, or other countries ban combustion engines and not so far into the future... How do we get that journey and where, where does that all go from an energy perspective? So if you want to go visionary here and uh, is basically you need to add a very important component, which is the whole autonomous driving or let's call it guided autonomous driving. Because while we're speaking about electrification of cars already, there is also the whole idea of, OK, cars can drive autonomously, semi-autonomously autonomous with certain guidance, but you can basically now have a lot of your vehicles do most of the driving on their own. And that creates completely for different forms of flexibility. It creates completely different possibilities in terms of services. And then if you take this one step further and you think of it now, not only as the single vehicle, but mobility and 
urban mobility, then you basically have a parallel development and they're coming from a different angle, but the two are meeting, is the so-called smart cities, where a smart city will basically have a very smart network. Think of you start with the traffic lights, with the roadsides, with the parking lots, etc., where you basically have a lot of sensors and a lot of signaling going on digital, then you bring in vehicles, electric, but fully digitized, basically completely networked. So that's the big hope that everybody has towards 5G, why 5G is so important, because basically you can give each and every possible device its own little SIM card so they can communicate. So if you add up electric vehicles being much easier to build, you'll have a lot of fun, fun uh, form factors. You will have them ultimately a lot cheaper to build. You will have them more or less autonomous. So all of a sudden, the flexibility in creating mobility becomes much, much higher. And with that, you also create much more integrated user experience, and you actually achieve much better resource allocation. Because the moment you stop thinking from mobility as I sit in my car, I weigh X kilogram, I'm not telling you how much, but my car weighs a ton and a half. And me basically sitting in my whatever kilogram to have one and a half kilo, one and a half ton of metal move me uh, in order to I can move. And 95% of the time, this one and a half ton of metal is sleeping because it's not used. Then obviously, if you think networked uh, uh, vehicles, together with the electrification and the fact that they're autonomous, you can now achieve a much better resource allocation. So all of a sudden, you're not only improving the environment because they're not emitting CO2 and nitrogen and whatnot, but because you basically now think about mobility, not as I drive my car, but I use mobility mobile vehicles when they're available. I use them in a shared economy. I use them in an ad hoc pay-per-use, transaction-based scenario, then all of a sudden, these vehicles are not going to sit there 95% of their time and sleep. They're going to be much more utilized, which by obvious mathematics means you need a lot less to be able to transport people the same amount of distance. So it now you're getting better environment, you're getting higher utilization, you're taking becoming more efficient. So what you're doing ultimately, you're able to bring in either a lot more people into the city at the same congestion, which is what Asia is now grappling with and the growing economies, or with the same population, you can basically achieve the same amount of mobility with a lot less vehicles on the road. So it's efficiency, it's clean, energy, it's a lot more flexibility because they become much easier to program. And so that is pretty much what it's going to. So think Blade Runner without the sadness in it. <laughs> so that's pretty much how the city of the future will look. So so getting there is what your vision is part of, right? Is is building foundational components. So what is it you're doing today that gets me to that vision? Yes. Well, I, I do take an engineer approach to things. I mean, I do like to look at the visions, but the visions don't get you anywhere unless you start building, right? And uh, so if you want to start building and you look at this, and now I'll kind of take one of these examples where the vision is very big, but you need to start with a very, very small, itty-gritty little piece of technology. So you have a lot of electric vehicles now, hopefully more and more. We expect in some countries, Norway is almost reaching it, but in some countries we'll have, you know, full market coverage with electric vehicles in 10 years. 
Germany would be one of those countries. Norway will have already reached it. And at that point in time, you have a lot of opportunities, but you also have a lot of challenges. Because at the same time we're doing this, because all of Europe, ultimately, I think most of the world is waking up to this, it has woken up to, we need a lot less, first of all, you know, um, emitting of CO2, et cetera, into the atmosphere, not only from the cars, that's what electromobility solves. So by putting electric vehicles out on the roads, you don't have the combustions basically uh, emitting poison gas into the streets. But at the same time, people are also addressing it from the other side of the value of the life cycle, which is as we produce the power that this electric vehicle is now using, in order to move, we also differentiate between green energy or not green energy, meaning do I use coal? That's what people like the least. Do I use oil? Do I use gas? Do I use nuclear energy? That's a no-no in Germany by now. Or do I use renewables? Meaning do I use wind power, earth um, earth temperature, um, or sun sunlight in order to create renewable energy? And more or less, Everybody tends to agree renewable energy are by far the cleanest, but they are also the most difficult to handle. And why is that? First of all, if you think about a power plant, you can pretty much stack it. So if you build it big enough, you can basically, with more or less the same amount of space, you can build a power plant that's 10 times as big, 100 times as big. Yes, you need a little bit more space, but essentially you can just use bigger turbines, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously with windmills, or with a solar panels, you cannot stack them. So the more energy you want to get through solars, the more you have to go decentralized because you have to horizontally spread it. And the same thing goes for windmills, for wind wheels. You cannot just stack them on top of each other. So if you want to grow the amount of wind power you want to harvest, you simply have to go decentralized. So first of all, these renewable energies will be highly decentralized by nature of how you need to harvest them. Then you got another big problem. So a gas plant or a coal plant or a nuclear plant is basically a machine, a factory. So it has a wheel, very simply put, turn up, turn down, turn up, turn down. Meaning I need energy, turn it up. I need less energy, turn it down. There's never been a problem in balancing power grids before. All of a sudden now, you got this energy that comes when the dear Lord makes it come. The wind blows when the wind blows and the sun shines when the sun shines, but your demand is not aligned with that. But you don't want to waste it because you need the energy. And the network, however, is not a storage system. So you have this very high volatility in the generation of this new power, and you need to somehow deal with that. And then you bring in more electric cars, and what's going to happen in the first wave is everybody's going to plug these things in between 5 p.m. and 5 a.m. Roughly speaking, depends on the country you're in and how early people go to work, they will all plug in their electric car within, or 80% of people will put it within eight, two hours of time, they're going to be plugging in the car for charging. So that creates a spike right there. That's a high volatility here. And then you got on the other side, the energy coming when it comes and the network not being a storage system. But doesn't doesn't that predictable? I mean, if if you know there's a two-hour window, the way the grid works... Right. You, you, you anticipate grid load. And if I know that, you know, 50 percent of my cars are electric and between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., a certain load's going to go on the grid. How is that any different than how the grid works or is designed to work today? 
and you would go to the spot market in a in an inst- in an instance where you you missed it, right? So where where am I missing something? So for the fixed pattern, you would somehow be able to deal with it. If you're fully renewable, you still have an issue. So if you're fully renewable, you you can't make the wind blow. So you will need some fallback measures that deal with that peak. So that can be dealt with. It's still inconvenient as of now. It could possibly be dealt with. But now the opportunity comes when you start, okay, let's assume you fix that. Now, at the same time, you put these cars in, into the charging stations. And take the simple example, I return home or the fleet turns the car off for the day. You plug it in at seven o'clock and you know you will pick it up again at four o'clock in the morning. So charging, let's make it two hours just to keep the calculation simple. It takes you two hours to fully charge this thing. But you actually have 10 hours where you know the car is not moving. So now, all of a sudden, you can spread the curve. You can flatten the curve if you have such a deal in place. So in order, if you instead of, you know, finding other power plants, you just basically have electric products where you give incentives so that the customer agrees to that. And then instead of insisting, I want it fully charged immediately, you just basically fully charge it until the next morning, which allows you to completely flatten the curve of that peak and basically spread it out over 10 hours where normally it would have been two hours. So that's already a nice thing. And we're approaching now the kind of new products and the new market mechanism we'll have. So we've already now got the energy, the power grid, and the electric mobility having to interact for this. Now think about what is in the electric car. There's a battery. Usually we think of the battery, you charge it, you drive, you charge it, you drive. But what if you think of it as a storage system? Essentially, you basically, if the car is connected and the technology is coming out, the first cars actually have it. Most electric vehicles will have it by the end of next year, which is called bidirectional charging or vehicle to grid. You can pump energy in and you can also suck energy out. So if you have a deal in place and incentives in place and agreements in place that allow you to do that. So where the power sector and the mobility sector are coupled in a way that these products are in place, you could now use whatever electric car is plugged into the grid as a basically variable battery. So if you have too much wind or too much solar power, you fill them up. If you have a demand for energy, you use them as basically to give you back energy. And all of a sudden you have merged in a way. That's why it's called sector coupling in Germany. You basically couple the power sector and the mobility sector to basically create one integrated cycle of clean energy where jointly they basically collaborate to use to the maximum efficiency green energy. So from the source of the energy and then bring it into electric mobility where the consumption happens. I think this is, I, I think, Harry, I think this is really interesting. I think theory is, is obviously very, very good. We see the number of electric vehicles going up. We have enormous capacity, but they're still defragmented. So there's a small, small little pieces here and there. This is very similar to a smart city concept a few years ago when we talked about, okay, this monetization on data, et cetera. Where do you see the challenges then? Because Suddenly, suddenly we're moving from a very, I wouldn't say isolated, but from a fairly strict ecosystem to an open ecosystem around something that is crucial. How, how do we solve this? <laughs> I don't think that's a, it's kind of a million dollar question, but what, what are your thoughts around it? 
I'll give you an engineer's answer, which is, of course, never complete. <laughs> but I'll give you an engineer's answer. And this is what we're doing currently. The very first thing that you need, you need to be able to fully know who is on this grid in terms of who's producing the power, who's charging you, the car, etc., possibly the battery. So you need one of my favorite topics. You need identifiers. So you need one-to-one. And please note, one-to-one. So each car must have one identity, possibly the battery in the car, because we've seen already makers like Neo, they basically replace the battery in the car. So possibly the battery gets its own identity. The charging station gets its own identity. The the companies and the aggregators, they all get their uh, own identity. You then use cryptographic mechanisms to make these identities secure so any type of data they send you can be verified and can be proven that they have not been tampered with. And then you think, and this is what currently a project we're engaged in, you try to use technologies such as distributed ledger, also known as blockchain, for transaction mechanism, where basically you have devices prove to each other who are they, Am I connected? Am I delivering a service? Yes, then please have the other device countersign that that service was indeed delivered. And by doing that, you'd put the basis for this very decentralized and therefore very fragmented ecosystem, which is emerging, to become handleable. Because the main challenge in all of this, as you want to fully automate this, because doing this manual is obviously not realistic. You will drown you would drown in operational costs, overhead, and errors. You need to fully automate this. That should be clear. So if you will need to fully automate it and do it in software, it basically needs to be provable. Because if you cannot prove what is happening, you will not be fully automating because you will spend too much time reconciling, debugging, finding the possible errors and trying to fix them. So you need to be able to address each device in your ecosystem, its unique identifier, you need to figure out very secure protocols that you cannot doubt, that you cannot refute, and that are not disputable for the conducting the transactions among them. And if you are willing to go down that route of thought, you have already almost spoken the word blockchain, and you have already almost spoken the word decentralized identifiers, because there's very few other technologies out there that fulfill that profile. And this, of course, is not the solution to the big scenario we just sketched. It's the basis in order, the minimum necessary, what you need in order to be able to even think about, can we actually fulfill all this vision And can we realize it? It's only the first step, but it's the foundation without which I believe none of this will work. So you're talking about a brownfield situation, right? Because everybody's got cars, everyone's evolving. So we can't flip a switch and go, all right, we're going to put this blockchain in place. We're going to do this or do that. Um, I've heard a lot of hype about blockchain. I've been in the energy business focused on blockchain for quite some time. I I was making fun of the the person that wrote the blockchain that your company uses. but there is certainly value there, right? Machine to machine, there the identity component you talk about and, and, and the, the individual pieces. But it means that you need everybody to play in the same sandbox, right? So where I see a lot of competing stories, even in e-mobility, if I, if I go out and see there's all kinds of white papers and people and 
how, how do you sway a community to use the same one that you're behind? Why, why is Ethereum the one that, that you're putting your flag on as opposed to another one? What, what's driving that angle of the business? Well, ultimately, it needs to be independent of whether it's Ethereum or this one or this one. It must be independent of that. Because any layer one, as you say, will always be a lake. It will be a big lake, possibly, but it is going to be a lake and there will be other lakes. So you need to go beyond that. Otherwise, that's not realistic. And the way to approach it, I'll first zoom in on the brownfield that you said. Brownfield is very difficult to handle with disruptive energies, or rather, if you want to flip it around, don't brown disruptive energy uh, uh, technologies are almost useless in brownfield scenarios so i think we can all agree on that from the one hand if you have a brownfield scenario which you are not free to change and anybody comes in and tries to sell you this highly disruptive technology be very wary what you buy so i wouldn't sell it to you and if somebody does i wouldn't believe it so however if you look at what would be the way to move forward and solve the scenarios or solve the issues we're talking about is that maybe the scenario is avoid brownfield, basically continue operating whatever your brownfield is, but as you design the new world, take that from greenfield, so separate. Basically branch now, run both in parallel, but design the new world of renewable energy decentralized grids based on new form factor vehicles, design that fresh. Make sure that somehow they can operate in parallel, but do not bring the legacy load and the legacy constraints of the brownfield into the new world, because your brownfield is essentially, there's parts in there that are 100 years old. You will be wasting the beautiful opportunities the new technologies give you by forcing them to fulfill requirements that are 100 years old. You'd be doing yourself and the options that you have injustice by doing that. So generally speaking, I would say if it's brownfield, it's very hard to do. Design your scope, design your transformation strategy, your transformation roadmap, so that you have existing brownfield, which you're letting to taper off essentially, and then you add the new ones based on greenfield where things can be thought new, invented new, built new, and basically therefore go at orders of magnitude more efficiently and uh, faster. That would be my really, otherwise it gets difficult. And this is one of the reasons why blockchain has in some circles a bad name. Because people went in there, looked at brownfield or legacy systems and said, I can make this better with blockchain, which, of course, is simply not doable. Basically, this technology is not evolutionary. This is a technology which is fundamentally concepts thought, again, in a completely new world. So they do not apply to the way we have been doing it. So it's not going to work if you basically latch it on to your brownfield. Mm -hmm. I also believe, try to avoid that. So, so quick follow-up question to that then. I think this is really interesting, but moving into the green field, that we bring part of the, the brown field, as you said, which is some, some of our legacy providers, if that's the one. We have new providers. We build it around some technology. How do, you, how do we get this to work? 
you have a lot of legacy that with with all that we know is the politics and it's the kind of the, the mentalities and all the rest. And we got so so creating this new green field of technologies. How do we get because it, it's made for everyone to be on it? Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So how how do we get everyone on board? Well, you know, it depends a little bit when you ask this question. You know, I'm I'm German and I live in a country where consensus and the so-called this culture of discussion is very well developed. So how do we get everybody on board can also end in nobody doing anything. Because how do we get everybody on board? So we first discuss. And then we discuss and then we discuss <laughs> some more and then we plan some more and then we pre-plan some more, etc. And in the end, nobody does anything. In the meantime, somebody who does like the normative strength of facts creates facts on the ground zoop, and you wake up one day. Oops. Well, I have to accept what has just been created because these people didn't wait and ask. Yeah. So that it's a disruptive approach to things. But I'll put you as an example. Imagine, and it used to be an imaginary example, it's becoming more realistic. Apple were to create an electric vehicle. And let's assume Apple would be successful with that. And Apple would now create, just like they created the App Store, they would now create the electric charging according to Apple's design metaphor and design paradigms. And a special cable too, by the way. Of course, special cable and each car you buy. Yeah, but they do you think they would even bother to look at whatever legacy is out there? Or would they not make a point in, no, have to basically consume it in a certain way that the legal system of the jurisdiction forces us to? We will go by that. But they are in all aspects going to think that from the ground up. Look at how Tesla has approached everything they're doing. They are achieving the speed they're doing because they're not asking. Uh, uh, is everybody from the legacy world on board? Hmm. As you think, as if you are in the disruptive business, not everybody has to go in that business. But do understand that the word disruptive, it means disruptive. It means it disrupts, which means it doesn't mesh. It doesn't work with what you got now. You can't eat your cake and have it in this. But it needs to be integrated, so can, right? It needs to be integrated, yeah. but then... Do it in a way that I do it in a way that you start isolated greenfields in in the network technology called sharding. So basically, find segments that are that you can identify, be it geographically, be it product, be it you know whatever. Find segments that are isolated where you can say, okay, in this new segment, we're going to allow all new. And then you define only on the interface to the old world, all right, how do we make sure that they they don't break the old, but except for that, we let them run on their own. And you let those start to start running and you continue to nurture them mm. while you see how they operate. And then you basically do your iterative design process based on these. And that's the only way that I see in the sectors that I am knowledgeable in. That's the only way I've ever seen it work. So you can mesh the two, but you need to be wary of don't mix them. Couple them where you need to, but keep them as far apart from each other as you can. So how does this apply to your current business? So maybe share what what you're doing, where you're at, because mm -hmm. uh, 
I've been doing disruptive technology my whole, whole career. I think Johan would say the same thing because he, he comes from a, a technical background as well. But where is it along the evolution? So I've heard, I've spoken with you before. We've talked about, you know, identity management. We've talked about charging stations. You're talking about machine to machine. So correct. where are we today and, and where is it going? So let's take a simple example. So let's assume now we were to try to build the system of the future where let's, and that's not imagine. There is actually a financial product in the energy sector, which is called flexibility. So basically the energy sector, very simply put, will pay for battery services to be provided. That's already running as long as I can guarantee capacity and uptime and service level agreements. The energy, the power sector will pay for that. So. Now let's assume we want to solve this from a technical sector without breaking the existing parts. The vehicles, all vehicles in the world have something called a VIN, a vehicle identification number. All energy um, installations also in the energy world already, they are being identified, they're being qualified, they're being pre-qualified. There's registry in the energy sector where each and every component of the power grid gets essentially what boils down to an identifier. So take that now and take it now to the level of technology. So start taking charging stations, start taking solar panels, start taking cars and batteries and give them now decentralized identifiers, which can be thought of as just a new version of identities which already exist, but which happen to work very beautifully on software. Now implement those give all, and equip them with the necessary software clients, a Web3 client in each one of them, a DID overlay on top, plus a nice DID software internet of identity layer on top. And now let these two sides couple each other over charging stations where the charging station looks very much like your normal run-of-the-mill charging station, so you're not breaking too much in the legacy world, but it actually has a fully qualified DID. It is connected in the, it, it has a little box inside in which the DID and the secure enclave and the private key is hold, which also happens to hold a small blockchain client, all right? And then you do the same thing with the car. So in terms of you've not broken anything, the car drives on the roads we're using, it's got a VIN, it's got registry, etc. So is the charging stations. But these two devices, now they have identities. Now make sure you have a chain of identities going to the owners of these devices. So the charging operator on the one side, the fleet operator on the other side. And now think of a product where multiply this by, let's say, 500. And now these 500 cars, keep it simple, they belong to fleet, two fleet operators. They somehow make a deal with one of the uh, power grid operators and they provide them the following service. I guarantee you that between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m. every morning, I will have 65% of my fleet connected to the charging stations. Boom. 65 is relatively easy to handle. And... In order to do this and to do this fully automatically, obviously this needs to be verified dynamically when it happens. But remember the DID, remember the little blockchain client, remember the transaction. So as you plug them in, whichever it may be, these devices talk to each other. They send home to mothership 
I am connected, I'm receiving electricity, how much? And all of a sudden, you have definitely enough that you need in terms of verification, billing information, proof of origin, proof of delivery that you need so that the happy fleet operator in this example, at the end of each month, gets X euros from the power grid operator. So this is a from the bottom up. This is something we're specifically working on from the bottom up. This you can do now. You haven't done any harm to the surrounding network, but of course you're operating kind of in an enclave in the sense that the rest of the network doesn't know any of this, but you can already do this. And then you can slowly increase the scope of who's willing to build up these enabled charging stations, who's willing to bring these enabled vehicles, and then you can slowly grow organically as an overlay network, basically, isolated, but still compatible to what you got in the past. You're not touching any other legacy. That's the main thing. You're not trying to improve the legacy part. You're just swimming on top of it and surrounding it by using technical solutions, which ultimately will allow you to drop the legacy in 50, 20 years when you've achieved the necessary penetration. Who's paying for this overhead? Where is that cost being observed? And, and, and who controls the customers at that point? Well, the flow of money here is in this example. So first of all, again, full disclosure, this type of business, which I believe Thank God I'm not the only one, but I believe is coming in the next 10 years is not something that would bring anybody operating profits in the last three years, in the next three years. So let's just tick that off. This is not a business where anybody is making profit in the next three years. This is a business you need to get into with a full 10 year horizon in order to even think about entering it as a business person. But having said that, the flow of money, ultimately, the direction is clear. Because it's the grid that needs the balancing, which means it is the grid, it is the power sector from which the liquidity will flow in this example. So the money will flow to, through the fleet operator, either to the fleet operator or to the holder of the car. Personally, I believe whoever has the batteries on their balance sheet and therefore has the risk uh, uh, at the residual value on their balance sheet is probably the person that will ultimately demand to be paid because we you can expect that the battery residual value will be impacted by using it in this additional manner. So that's where a lot of the incentives will need to flow. But then as long as this money is provided and the product exists, so in the energy sector, you probably know this, there is flexibility. It's traded every day. It's a tens of billions of euros financial product. It's essentially a combination of a put and a call option at any point in time. So the product exists, the money exists, the liquidity exists. So in terms of money flow, it's fairly straightforward. What you What is missing are the market mechanisms. Because from the regulatory perspective, for instance, nowadays, the people that need the balancing, who are the energy backbone people, at this point in time, they cannot touch the retail customer yet. There's at least one or two layers between them and the retail customer. You need to somehow bridge that because the fleet operator is a retail customer as far as the energy grid is concerned. So how do you manage to run all of this while still abiding by the laws of the land and the regulation of the land? So all of these things, when you think them through, the problem is never the technical side. The problem is almost always the regulation 
that will determine can this be done or not. Technically speaking, this can be done now. And if you would completely discard the regulation, regulatory aspect, you could even find market mechanisms that would work now. So the sh- long answer is we need to basically have sandboxes here. This is why this is done as proof of concepts by the power grid operators. And this is not something they're rolling out tomorrow, but they're verifying it can be done. And then it's going to be a slow process talking to the regulators and determining in which way then do we channel this new capability. So having heard all that, what is it you actually built or are building? On this specific part, we are building a blockchain layer with an overlay of decentralized identifiers, part of the decentralized identifiers handling verification of credentials and verification of claims, where the proof of transaction in this delivery of the flexibility product by an individual car to its counterpart, the counterpart physically is the charging station, Um, economically, it's the aggregator who provides the charging stations. We provide the transaction management, the proof of transaction, the proof of origin, the proof of identity, and the proof of delivery for that. So at the very bottom up layer. So in this big scheme of things, what we are building here is at the lowest layer on the tech layering, but yeah, and at the smallest individual, so charging station meets car, operator owning charging station meets fleet operator owning car. And that at that point le- level, this is where we're building the transaction mechanisms. And so when you say you're building the transaction mechanisms and you're using a blockchain, I'm assuming that there's a, a net neutrality kind of or a neutral intermediary role that, that's trying to be played so you can get everybody to sign up. Is that... Correct. Along yes. your thinking, or how's that go? Yes, very. Yes, and all, this is already as part of the proof of concept we're doing here. It is on the energy side. There is a blockchain, and on the mobility side, there's a completely different blockchain, and that's almost by purpose. It came organically, but then we very much took the opportunity and kept it like that. And then this is again one of these beauties of this decentralized identifier technology. It provides what's called an overlay network. Overlay network is something that you know from the telco world. So basically, you got Skype running on telecommunication networks, and it's an overlay on top of it. So what does that mean for identities and blockchain? Identities can be issued by one blockchain layer and can be verified by that blockchain layer, but they travel across blockchains because they are truly decentralized. So in terms of human, and the same applies to the car, your identity will be in your edge device, in your wallet. In the same with the car, it's in the car. In the case of the user, it's in the mobile phone. And that's where the anchor for your identity is kept. That is also where your credentials are being kept. And the verification thereof are what's called in the industry blockchain agnostic. So yes, I'm operating a blockchain layer for the transaction part of it, for the notarization as you were, a glorified timestamp and witness engine is what the blockchain is at the end of the day. But the business facts, And the business identities and the credentials and the qualifications, they are actually not part of the blockchain layer. They are part of the verified credential layer. And those travel across one blockchain to the next because that's a W3C working standard. So that's the World Wide Web Consortium. A DID is a URI. So let me slightly make a technical mistake. Let's call it a URL 
meaning a DID is very similar to the what you enter into the browser when you go to a web page. It's the same organization, it's the same mechanism, it's the same technical paradigm on which all of this is based. And this guarantees that we do not need to worry about whichever layer one it is. I would still like my layer one blockchain. Right now, it's a quorum or Ethereum fork, essentially. I can switch this at any point in time. The logic is not going to break if you design it right. But most of all, the transactions that we are conducting here between the sector of power and the sector of mobility is in no way affected by whichever layer one the people on the power grid operate or whichever layer one we operate because the communication and the exchange is based on something that is truly interoperable. And that's how it needs to be. So it's a, it's a lot to digest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think a quick digestion for me is that a fleet man, a role of a fleet manager in the next coming year will change dramatically. <laughs> rather than the, They have the fleet manager gets a new, gets new opportunities here. Yes. There is new product. And the beauty of these products is that it's not only financial. I do believe that financial incentives are always needed because they just get everybody really focused. But on top of it, think of what you're doing here. You are very clearly, and everybody can get that idea, renewable energies must be better than coal, right? Yeah. That's not too hard to understand. And the electric car is definitely cleaner than combustion engine. So also not too hard to understand. So all of a sudden, you have a proposition here where we're all working together, net zero, as they call it, to move towards carbon neutrality. All right. Now, that is a proposition that beyond the financial incentives, there'll be social capital associated to that. There will be social buy-in. There will be the need and the willingness to participate in this, which will make structuring products around this so much easier because this is, as far as I can tell, this is an only positive product. There's there's nothing negative hmm. in these kind of products. So they would sell themselves once they become available. But they don't come for free, right? I mean, you, you've got compute to keep the blockchain up. There's there's a, a lot of energy used in, in, in that, depending on the kind of proofs, if you zero knowledge proofs, you depends on the calculations you're doing. I mean, there, there's a bunch that comes with overhead. Nothing's ever, it's, it's too good to be true if there's no cost, right? Nothing's um, ever for free. I agree. Yeah. So, but I mean, I, I think if if the good outweighs the bad and the business drives profitability, what we saw with solar, we've seen with others, when when, when the economics make sense is when the world moves. Um, one thing yes. I kind of, we don't have much time left, but I, I have heard you speak in the past about kind of a, a transformation in how energy industry or in, and industry insiders would need to view their resources and their tools. And I think it's about competition and, and sharing resource. So time to market type things, right? Yes. So I, I've heard you sound, you know, sound a you know big cheer for open source kind of projects, not reinventing where 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 you could have competition, where it makes sense to share resources. Maybe you could yes. tell us just a little bit about your thinking there, because that might be interesting to the audience. Yes, it applies more to the mobility than the energy sector, simply because the energy sector is highly regulated. So it's easier, imagine an ecosystem where you have more or less true competition, but you have got it fragmented. So the individual players are not very big anymore. So none of the individual players holds more than single percentages of the market. But now you're, you're propositioning infrastructure that 
ultimately should operate in the whole market. Basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get everybody on this. And historically speaking, what has happened in the last 20 years is you've got platform operators analyzing the market, building the software to do that market, taking the customer relationship into their own hands and scaling it like boom, crazy. That's why they're called hyperscalers. But if you now want to do this in a more organic manner where the companies that provide the service get to keep their customer relationship and don't fall into a dependency where at some point in time, the central platform operator can say 20% revenue, take it or leave it. And because they have aggregated critical mass, it's have to take it. So the decentralized platform or cooperative approach works that basically people recognize me as one company I am big, but I'm not big enough to basically aggregate all of mobility, for instance, on a platform that I would represent. So let's take a company like Toyota. I'm not affiliated with them. But if Toyota would go out there and they're big in Japan and they're the world's second biggest or third biggest car manufacturer, would try to build a mobility ecosystem, first of all, they would not have enough critical mass <clears throat> because if you want mobility, ultimately you need every mobility asset in your urban area to be able to connect over that platform. So in order to achieve that, you need to bring the other players who are from other companies on it as well. So the moment you do this as one big player, you will not be able to get the other big players on it. So now think historically in any of our home countries, you've always had something called the cooperative. So I always use the example here because I live in a wine area in Germany where the wine farmers, they basically jointly operate the wine pressing. It's called Kelterei. So it's a big building in most villages here where they bring in their grapes in early September. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, early September probably. They bring in the grapes and they have them pre-processed. This it's a big building. It costs a lot of money. It keep, it needs maintenance. And each of these individual farmers is too small to afford it. And towards each other, they are very strict competitors. So they don't like each other. I want your customer. You want my customer. So this is true competition. But still, they get together. They invest together. They operate together. This wine processing part. The same way, actually, they also operate a marketplace in that village together, where very peacefully, they basically jointly finance it. They actually encourage it to be profitable, because that's the only way to be maintained and keep its upkeeping, but in order to do something that's beyond their own size. And if you think now and try to translate that to the modern world of software platforms, then decentralized technologies, they are very beautifully fit for that. Because if you think of a blockchain as a node in a shared ledger, which is shared bookkeeping. So I got something where I can basically have shared bookkeeping. So we keep global transaction bookkeeping among us. It's very easy to roll out. It's bigger than each and every single one of us. Then in order to operate this, this platform, the governance of this platform, must be such that none of the major players that use it have any controlling stake over it. Because the moment one of them controls it, the other ones are not going to want to use it. They will be willing to engage in this if they jointly own it or none of them owns it, whichever form it may be, it gets into the governance mechanisms here. But this is a part which is, that's the only way to achieve 
platform scaling without having yet again another industry basically ravaged by centralized platforms. And I believe pretty much the, the day of the big platforms in China now, it's, we see it, in Europe we see it, the big platform operators, they've reached their peak, their peak is behind them. It's simply not acceptable from a social, economical and financial point of view. If you see the damage they do to the wider ecosystems, there needs to be a counter proposal on how to scale and how to operate that leaves more value in the pockets of those that deliver the primary service. It cannot be that the marketplace starts taking 20% of revenue and basically dictating the terms to those that provide the service. That is unhealthy. And this is where decentralized technology is very, very well suited to be able to address this in an efficient manner, which can compete with what we've seen in the other ways of doing software platform scaling. Well, I could spend a lot more time talking with you. I think we're a bit over time for our, our, our normal episode time. Um, I, I found that fascinating. I, I, I really like the technology. I like the business overlay. I'm not quite sure that our listeners know if they call Harry, why they'd be calling Harry right now. So if they want to find out more about what you do, where should they look? Where should they go to find you? Well, go to find me on LinkedIn, I would say. It's the easiest way to find me. That's where I'm most active. And uh, on blocksmove.com. Awesome. And, and, and I'd be remiss not to bring up the one point that I did hear you say on another podcast is that I think I heard you quoted as saying that you think Elon Musk is a demigod and, and really you look up to him. Is that, I, I I've, know I've heard you say that. I'm not, not sure looking up to him. He's, he is just living on a scale that is so vastly above any scale we live in that, <laughs> I mean, look at what he creates. Look at his wicked, evil sense of humor. Look at the way he doesn't care what people think about him, how he's completely free. In his thinking, he is it doable? He does it. He doesn't ask why. He doesn't ask please. He just does. And he does that with such a sense of fulfillment, which radiates from the guy. So I just love watching him. I will not compare myself to him. I'm, I'm not looking up to him. I'm not looking down to him. He's beyond my scale of judgment. He's just, wow. <laughs> well, well I, with that, I think we'll bring this episode to a close. I, I want to thank you personally, Johan. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts. No, I, I just love the last quote on Elon Musk. And I second that as well, Harry. I, I think it's quite phenomenal in the way he does it. And and I, I think in general, this whole thing about decentralized or the digital ecosystem, I'm a firm believer in this. The devils are obviously in the details, but we're heading there sooner or later. So I think this was really interesting and fantastic to, to have you on. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope to talk again real soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. All right.